Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Mary Hill Winery. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. All right, Seattle, all right, Puget Sound, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your master mixologist and commodore of cocktails. Hey, happy 2016. I hope you are still sticking to your New Year's resolutions, and uh, hopefully you've uh, told all your friends about Happy Hour Radio. We're entering our third year here pretty quick, uh, right after the Super Bowls when we started back uh, that glorious day in 2013, and uh, I'm so pleased to be here, still alive, happy, and healthy, and uh, with some new great guests, as always. Uh, Today I've got Paul Clark, and Paul Clark is a a master mixologist as well. He is uh, the executive editor of Imbibe Magazine. Um, He's uh, born and raised in Seattle, spent some time in New York, and also San Francisco, uh, obviously imbibing, I'm sure. And uh, he's got this really cool book and a website, The Cocktail Chronicles. I remember when I I remember when I was reading uh, sci-fi. There was the Martian Chronicles. <laughs> That's what got me started. And uh, well, I went from Martian to Mars to uh, to bars. How about that? Uh, so I'll say, Paul Clark, welcome to Happy Hour. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Hey, I'm excited about the new year and a chance to meet. Um, you're quite a famous person, if I may say that. And uh, I'm pleased to have this first opportunity to meet you. Let's talk about a little of your history. You said uh, you told me you were born in Seattle, but how did you get into uh, well, into alcohol. Was it keggers at 16? <laughs> well, you know, like anybody else, you get into it in college and you kind of go one direction or another. Uh, eventually, about uh, 12 or 13 years ago, I started taking interest in cocktails. I never really paid attention to them before that, but, you know, was going to a dinner party one night and it was either, um, you know, wind up washing the dishes or mix a drink for everybody. So oh. this seemed like the, the more interesting way to go and, uh, you know, mixed a drink and it just kind of seemed normal. Wow! So you're uh, you're auto, you're hostess by nature, or uh, I should say host. I guess it doesn't matter. Let's say hostess. Hostess sounds more fun. Um, so what college did you go to? Uh, I, I went to NYU, uh, New York University. Uh, moved, uh, came back to Seattle in 1998, and have been here ever since. Okay, but you were born in Seattle, you said. I've I've, I've moved around quite a bit, uh, but uh, Seattle for the last 15 years. Oh, all right. Yeah. Well, that's good to get that. Um, we're pleased to have you. Um, I'm excited about you. Studied journalism in NYU, or what was your passion then? Um, you know, originally I was on course to become a psychotherapist. That didn't pan out. Um, took a couple of uh, career directions along the way. Landed in journalism about uh, 15, 16 years ago. And um, somehow cocktails just kind of came into the scene. Uh, into the scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're neither psycho nor a therapist. Uh, actually, you are a therapist in a way, right? Aren't bartenders kind of the uh, uh, the uh, default therapist for all of us when we're, you know, why the long face? Eh? You know, it all comes full circle. Oh, for sure. Um, you got into writing for Imbibe. Tell me about this magazine, Imbibe. Uh, Imbibe launched in 2006. Uh, basically, it's it's published in Portland, and the goal was to have a part of the of the food magazine world that was devoted entirely to drinks, to coffee, to wine, to beer, to great cocktails, and and everything else that is fascinating in a glass. Um, Ten years ago, we launched. Uh, we are celebrating our 10th anniversary later this year. Uh, I've, I've been a part of the magazine as a writer and later as an editor. 
editor uh, since issue number one in 2006. So I'm really excited to see us closing in the, on this major milestone. Excellent. Well, how will our listeners find a copy of Imbibe magazine? Is it on the, the newsstand here in Seattle or around? Or is it online? Uh, as they say, you can find it wherever fine magazines are sold. Um, <laughs> you'll find it in, uh, in a lot of major newsstands, uh, major markets, uh, as well as going online to imbibemagazine.com. All right. So looking back to issue number one, um, I remember my first show, I was uh, I spoke really fast <laughs> going back to my archives. Uh, what was the first topic that you wrote about in issue number one for Imbibe magazine? The, the first topic I wrote about was a personality profile of somebody who's, who's become a very good friend of mine, uh, this guy named Ted Hay. Uh, he travels in the booze world as Dr. Cocktail. He had written a book at the time that um, plumbed kind of the, the hidden mysteries and the hidden history of the cocktail. Uh, it was called Vintage Spirits and Forgotten Cocktails, and it put a lot of people, including myself, on the path to plumbing cocktail history and kind of finding some of these fantastic drinks that had been lost to us for generations in some cases and recreating them and really kind of you know, spurring our own curiosity into it. That's interesting. When do you think uh, the first cocktail, I'm, I'm, I've done some reading and a little bit of history, and uh, they trace some cocktails, obviously, to New York, because that's where the uh, uh, center of civilization in the United States, well, in America was at the time, uh, prior to, of course, well, for the, uh, uh, the Englanders who came over. Um, but in your mind, or in your knowledge, where was the first cocktail invented? Well, you know, the cocktail is one of those things that happened in a bar, um, so nobody was really writing it down at the time. Uh, but the first traces that we find of cocktails certainly are, are in the New York or Northeast area uh, from a little over two centuries ago. So basically in the very earliest years of the American Republic was a time when we were shedding kind of those drinking patterns that we'd brought over from Europe, the drinking patterns of the past, and carving out this entirely new direction. So it's a uniquely American culinary uh, phenomena. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's it's been very much a part of the American identity almost from day one. <laughs> That's why we get tattoos with uh, martini shells on our arms. Um, and when you say that the uh, it started the origin or the genesis was in the Northeast, what were some of the drinking patterns from uh, Europe? Obviously, wine was big because there's uh, great vineyards there, and so was beer. Oh, absolutely. Wine and beer were, were two of those traditions that came over with the earliest settlers. Uh, wine had the downside is, is that they just couldn't get grapes to grow uh, in the colder climates that they were initially settling. And so it was really people with money who could afford decent wine coming in. The same for brandy. You know, brandy was the sought-after spirit at the time. Um, but in the early years of America, both in the colonial era uh, as well as in the early years of the Republic, we started seeing things that were made a little bit closer to home. And those tend to be boozy things. Uh, rum was the big thing that, that really kind of drove uh, the, the early years of America. Coming out of the Caribbean and the sugar trade, and it should be said the slave trade, uh, was all wrapped together. But all of that came into those eastern seaboard cities uh, during the colonial colonial era. Um, and rum and brandy and pretty much anything else that you could find was often going into a punch bowl, which is also a very uh, kind of European uh, way of, of, of enjoying uh, a drink. Uh, putting it together on a large format for a crowd and spending basically your day or your evening this away. <laughs> <laughs> I like spending the day drinking away. Uh, so fun. I'm speaking with Paul Clark, who uh, is the author 
of the Cocktail Chronicles and, uh, well, the executive editor for Imbibe Magazine. And uh, the website for Imbibe Magazine is? ImbibeMagazine.com. That's easy. Um, what's subscription for that? You get six issues a year. It's a bi-monthly? Right. Uh, it's, it's a bi-monthly. Um, so uh, we, we just kicked off our year for, for 2016, our January-February issue, which includes our Imbibe 75. Basically, it's a roundup of 75 people and places and, ah. uh, and destinations that should be on your drinking radar for the coming year. I love that. Is there anything in the Northwest that was included in that 75? We, we have a few things. Um, one of the places here in Seattle uh, was uh, Holy Mountain Brewing, uh, which is a relatively recent uh, brewery to, to come into town. Um, kind of a brewing super group, if you will, from brewers from, from other breweries from around the area came together and are making some of the greatest beer in Seattle right now. Well, I'm not familiar with that. I'll have to get them on the show. Where are they located? Uh, you know, I, I believe they're, I, I don't know their street address, uh, but they're here in town. Okay. Um, and uh, you can check them out online as well. So were you part of a, a team to put that, that 75, top 75 together? You Did you uh, have some additives to that list or did, is it sort of uh, someone else wrote that that? Piece. It, it was uh, basically our editorial team, as well as one of our regular contributing editors, Joshua Bernstein, uh, who's our regular beer writer. Um, we all came together and over the course of weeks and months, um, hashed out and basically narrowed down the list to 75 people, places, uh, destinations. I mean, in addition to places like Holy Mountain, um, we picked some of the more interesting bars from around the country that have opened uh, just in, in recent months, as well as picking out people, uh, individuals who who are either really kind of doing something new and interesting in the world of drinks or um, longtime professionals who are kind of reaching a significant point in their career. Um, <laughs> one, one example I'll pull out of there is our bartender of the year, Megan Dorman. She's a bartender in New York City. Um, she works at three bars now, uh, Dear Irving, um, the newest bar, The Bennett, and uh, Rain's Law Room. And uh, basically, she has been such a fixture on the New York bar scene and in the national bar scene for a number of years. Uh, she's just a wonderful person, an absolutely focused individual, so we wanted to highlight her achievements as Bartender of the Year. That's pretty neat. And she probably uh, knows some some anecdotes and keeps her, her, her constituents, her customers happy. And uh, do you think that the therapy of a bartender is still going on. I mean, I, I think about the old taverns where you got the sage bartender who's been there for uh, 50 years and so he knows everything. But it seems as if the, the culture of the bartender um, has sort of evolved to be more of a sophisticated style person. Yeah, would you agree? It's you know the the job of the bartender certainly has changed in recent years, but some things have remained constant. Uh, the the role of the bartender as uh, the host, uh, as as and the role of hospitality in the job of the bartender has never changed. And if anything, even as the bar world and as the cocktail world becomes more specialized, those skills as a host and those hospitality skills at making your guests feel comfortable and making them uh, understand what you're serving them and making them happy in the bar, that's become even more focused. So. It's been a really interesting phenomenon to see this kind of evolution of the bar uh, in recent years and, and of the bartender's profession. That's pretty neat. And, uh, of course, we all know that the bartender can still cut you off. So <laughs> they do wield a lot of power. You know, it's interesting as we, we recognize this cocktail culture throughout America and perhaps the world, um, there is a youth movement here which has become sort of tied into, it's integral with social media and looking down at their phones. I think there's a certain... Um, segment of our population that doesn't have the social skills that have been developed because back in the day we actually had to chat we couldn't text and you know we were writing notes and things like that so we learned how to actually write and print and, and use our cursive but um, it's it's an interesting uh, uh, 
well, what is it? Uh, parallel of how two cultures, cocktails, meaning all the kids today, we loved, you know, when we turn 21, we go to the bar and have, you know, all kinds of crazy cocktails. And, but the sophistication of the of the um, consumer hasn't sort of risen up, even though they've got all this power in their in their hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're really we are really seeing uh, the evolution of the consumer in some ways because you know we can go back decades really when you look at the evolution of the American palate, uh, where we became more interested in food and food that tastes good, food that tastes challenging, uh, and that aren't just the you know craft dinners uh, from 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 my uh, childhood. <laughs> um, you had you know this growing interest in beer starting in you know the 1980s 1990s and craft beer especially here in Seattle and the Northwest we've seen such a tremendous boom in that in um, interesting wineries and again in the Northwest we've experienced a lot of that so this is I think kind of a natural evolution of that we're seeing people who have these more developed maybe more adventurous palates looking for something surprising looking for something new even things that are challenging flavors that might have scared us a few years ago uh, now kind of pursuing those and seeing where they go so we, we've seen this kind of creativity on the part of the bartenders and we're very much seeing the you know the clientele come along with that uh i agree and when you say the creativity of the bartender there's a certain creativity that everything old is new again and we think the classic cocktails are really something that have been hidden in some recipe books and now they're they're making their way out with uh of course the um amaros and the uh, the bitters and uh the uh, aged cocktails everyone's sort of being a cook or a chef inside uh, behind the bar Absolutely. You know, we had kind of a dark era uh, for the cocktail in the United <laughs> States. You know, after Prohibition and then after the Second World War, we wound up in this long trough that really lasted for several I decades. Like trough, that's the right yeah. word for it. <laughs> uh, especially once we got into the 60s and 70s. You know, uh, people were focused on other ways to uh, to get their excitement. Um, and, <laughs> Subtly put. <laughs> and, and also, you know, it's the time of the uh, uh, not, not the most uh, creative cuisine in America. We were very much, you know, kind of going on that fast food diet, that convenience food diet, and our drinking habits went very much the same way. Our drinks became boring. Uh, they became sweet. They became dull. Uh, and they were just not exciting in, in any way. Um, and it wasn't really until the 1990s, and especially as we turned the new century, that you saw bartenders starting to go back to those older books, starting to uh, do a little bit of research, historical research, and find some of the drinks that um, were really exciting and really tasted good and were, and were fun to serve. Well, I'm excited to have you in studio because you've got the book, Cocktail Chronicles, speaking with Paul Clark. And when we come back from this break, I've got, uh, well, I see a bunch of bottles um, and very interesting. I'm excited for you to make some of the cocktails. So, folks, stick around. When we come back from this break, we're going to dive into some uh, fun libations with Paul Clark, uh, executive editor of Imbibe Magazine. So stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Hey, this is Chris Gorman from Gorman Winery, and you are listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570-KVI. The Commute with Carlson, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m. on Talk Radio 570-KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. All right, Puget Sound. Welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. It's time for round two, and actually time for me to have a cocktail. I've got Paul Clark, the executive editor of Imbibe Magazine. That's ImbibeMagazine.com. He's a Seattleite these days, and he's written a cool book called The Cocktail Chronicles. I'm excited to check that out, but Paul's here to to make a first drink. Paul, what do you got in store? 
Well, you know, I, I want to kind of span the spectrum in the drinks we're serving, so I'm going to dig back a little over a century to a drink called the Hanky Panky. Hanky Panky. Hanky Panky. Not the Hokey Pokey. Exactly. Yeah, you don't want to get those mixed up. <laughs> yeah, they're both fun in a way, but I, right. I would pursue the one or the other. So, Hanky Panky... Um, where would, was this developed? Where did it origin? This came out of the American bar at the Savoy Hotel in London. Uh, a little over a century ago, it was developed by a bartender named Ada Coleman. Uh, and she has the distinction of being one of the uh, early female bartenders to really kind of earn a wide reputation and uh, to, to have her name live on, if you will, uh, as we get into the cocktail renaissance. So this is a drink that she came up with. It's a very simple drink. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more uh, engaging and bracing than a lot of things that you come across but it's going to be gin, sweet vermouth, and the bitter Italian amaro called Fernet Branca. Fernet Branca. Uh, one of my favorite. I use Fernet Branca um, as a digestif, uh, and it's a, a great, um, well, especially for the holidays when we have all this great food. It's like, okay, what can I finish with? You've had the pecan pie. You've had the a la mode. Um, perhaps a little Sambuca, which is too sweet. But the Fernet Branca, very herbaceous. Um, I, apparently, they make a lot of that in Argentina, and it's full of a host of different herbs and flowers. Oh, absolutely. It has this lovely kind of uh, minty aspect to it. There's there's also a eucalyptus edge uh, to, to Fernet Branca that gives it that you know kind of bright fragrance to it. Uh, and I love it. Um, typically, uh, I prefer it on the rocks myself because I used to drink Jägermeister on the rocks because I, you couldn't shoot that anymore. It's like all oh, the kids. Well, I was a kid back then too. <laughs> we were shooting Jägermeister. And it was like, oh my god, the, you can only go through so many shots at a time. So sipping it, you got to enjoy that uh, that distinctive taste. And this is a drink that you shake or that you stir. This is a drink that you stir. Uh, it's all spirits. So, you know, again, you have your gin, your vermouth, and your Fernet Branca. Um, you could shake it if you really wanted to, but stirring it, it keeps from adding too many bubbles to it, so it just makes it kind of prettier in the glass. Okay. And uh, so th so when you shake something, you're, you're okay with the bubbles. You're trying to actually... Uh, what's the idea behind shaking, actually? Well, shaking, I mean, both shaking and stirring uh, perform a couple of functions. They cool the drink, and they also dilute the drink, uh, both of which are essential to a cocktail. With shaken drinks, typically you have lemon juice or lime juice or, or some other kind of uh, juice or, or cream or dairy component to it. And the shaking helps aerate the drink. So it kind of brightens it up, brightens the texture a little bit. But for something like a Manhattan martini or a hanky-panky, you can just stir it because you wind up with uh, the same accomplishment, but also that kind of silky texture to it. Uh, and texture is a big thing we use in the sommelier uh, speak. We, you know, I was there at uh, my friends with Canlis. We have a tasting group there and we're talking about texture these days because that's part of the, uh, well, the definitive definition of a wine's uh, terroir. We're talking about texture in the mouth. Now, when it comes to garnishing, um, I know that in the old days, people would take the little channel knife and make that cute little stringy garnish, mm -hmm. um, but it also... It seemed too small or something. It didn't really offer enough. It, and sometimes they got old. And now I see all the bartenders these days obviously taking their, um, what do you call it? Their, uh, what do you call Usually just a vegetable peeler, a Y peeler. Peeler, um, yes. Yeah, because basically what you're doing, you're getting a thinner strip. Um, so you're not getting that kind of bitter pith, white pith. Right. Uh, but you're also getting a wider strip. So when you squeeze it over the drink, it gives up that nice little spray of citrus oil. Yeah. Uh, plus, you know, when you use the channel knife, you wind up with that lo one long strand. To me, it always kind of looked like a in the glass, and I never found that all that appealing uh, in the bar. Unless, of course, you're drinking mezcal, then it's a different thing. Of course, you got the bottom of the beer. I see. 
So um, what do you call these these classic cocktail drinks? This looks like a little um, sherry or aperitif drink, and it's interesting that all the uh, cocktail glasses in the old days were, were rather delicate and, and more petite. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the whole aspect behind a cocktail is it should be something short, something that you enjoy in a, in a very brief period of time. A cocktail is not really designed to be lingered over for, for 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, it's something that, that uh, you know, you're supposed to be able to finish before it gets warm. So when you see the old glasses or when you find the old glasses in thrift stores or estate sales, uh, they tend to be a lot smaller than the, you know, big birdbath size things that uh, that you see still sometimes nowadays. I know. The big glasses are so American, you know, supersized Right, exactly. The big gulp of martini. 24-ounce beers and such. So I took a sip. um, Very, very balanced. Uh, The aroma, I like that you get the orange, excuse me, the lemon oil, and then you get a hint of the mint um, from the Ferna Branca uh, on the palate. A very... I'll say it's generous on the palate in, in its first attack. You get this great flavor, but it doesn't, it's not concentrated. It actually just sort of slowly, it's like a, a, a small wave on the beach just crashes and then kind of fades away. Absolutely. One thing I love about this drink, it's kind of a big botanical party. Between the gin, the vermouth, and the fernabranca, you have so many different kinds of plants and herbs and spices in the mix that uh, you have this really bright fragrance, this nice kind of earthiness to it, and just this balance throughout, as well as that bitter finish to it. Nothing is overwhelming. Everything is in balance. It is in balance. And to me, you know, that's really the key for any beverage, whether it's wine, a beer, because they got, you know, malty beers and hoppy beers, but you Mm got to find that balance. And this cocktail, definitely the Hanky panky. Who <laughs> we'll figured that has balance, right? You gotta slow down on us. Um, what are the mar- measurements here for the gin, Fernet Branca, and the sweet vermouth? Uh, it's it's a very easy cocktail to put together. I put in uh, two ounces of gin, London Dry Gin, uh, or you can use a Plymouth style gin, uh, one ounce of sweet vermouth, and a quarter ounce of Fernet Branca, stirred strained it into a glass, and then squeezed a uh, piece of lemon zest over it. Yeah, and the, the quarter ounce of Fernet Branca is important because Fernet is very powerful. Um, Fernet Branca is is a brawler. Um, Put a lot of it in there, and it just takes over the drink. So you want to use it in in very discerning measures, or use it in a drink where you can just really let the big dog off the leash. Yeah, and uh, there's quite the balance here. You you can really taste all the flavors, really. The gin, and what gin did you use here? Uh, For this drink, I used Ford's Gin, um, which is a relatively new brand on the market. Uh, It's it's distilled in London, uh, and it's from a uh, basically a group of bartenders got together and put together their own liquor company and designed something specifically for use in cocktails. Interesting. So the juniper is not really super... Pronounced in this cocktail is that? Do they do a lot of juniper in that? Or? They, they 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 use juniper in it, but they don't make it a. Uh, it, it doesn't pop you in the nose with the juniper. Not not like something like a classic London Dry, like Tanqueray Gin would. Um, instead, they're looking for more of that kind of earthy, savory balance. Something that works well in a cocktail like the Hanky Panky or a Martini, but it will also work very well in uh, a number of shake and gin drinks. But basically, something that has a lot of versatility to it. And we can find these cocktails on your website. You can find them on my website, and uh, they're also in my book. In my book, The Cocktail Chronicles, so you can go to the, all the places where they sell great books. Is that it? The <laughs> exactly. Wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know what I like about this drink, too, is that not only is it balanced, but the temperature is just very pleasant. It's it's chilled enough to make it refreshing, but not so cold that you can't really appreciate all of the nuances of the, the depth of flavor, the complexity. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when you first get a cocktail at the bar, it should be very cold because it's going to sit there, and it's going to warm up fairly quickly. So you want to be cold as soon as it hits the glass but um, at the same time the the 
as the drink warms up a little bit, whether it's the Hanky Panky or a Manhattan or what have you, you start to get more of those aromatics and more of those flavors start to develop in the drink. Now, you didn't add any bitters, right? Because, uh, of course, the uh, sweet vermouth and uh, the Fernet Branca have uh, lots of bitter flavor along with uh, menthol, eucalyptus, flowers, etc. Exactly. Um, I didn't add any bitters to this. In some bars, you'll see them add a dash of Angostura. If you like, go for it. Yeah. Um, Angostura is a little powerful for me. I, I like it when my tummy's <laughs> not, not so good. But uh, um, you say this drink was from Ada Coleman from the Savoy American Hotel? Fr- from the American bar at the Savoy Hotel oh, in London. Uh-huh. Uh, the bar is still there. It's still one of the world's best bars. Uh, Ada, of course, is, is long gone, but they have a fantastic bar team there, and it's worth checking out next time you're in London. So cute. I love it. Well, what uh, you have two more cocktails for us today. What What are the names of these? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move a little bit. Um, I'm also going to go old school with the second ring. It's called a Boulevardier, uh, and it's one of those cocktails that had disappeared from the map for a number of years. Uh, it had appeared in a book in 1927 and then basically never been heard from again until about 10 years ago uh, when uh, Ted Hay, Dr. Cocktail, wrote about it in Imbibe magazine, and now you see it on a number of uh, bar menus across the country and really around the world. Is it composed of some French things? It's 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 not actually. It um, sounds like a French word, boulevardier. Well, th- the thing is, you know, since it. it- since it originated in 1927, if you recall your American history, pro- prohibition was uh, w- was in place at the time uh, in the United States. So a lot of American bartenders had gone to London or to Paris to, to practice their trade. That was the case with this with this drink. It originates in Paris, but it's from an American bartender. So fun. I'm speaking with Paul Clark, a master mixologist who is the executive editor of Imbibe Magazine. And that's imbibemagazine.com. And also the author of The Cocktail Chronicles, over 200 recipes for rediscovered classics, enduring standards, and contemporary concoctions. What does the book run? Uh, the book runs uh, twenty four ninety five. Oh, and it's it's really a good hefty book. This is almost like a textbook for college. I mean, this is it's a soft cover, but uh, there's a. Uh, how many? 200 cocktail uh, yeah, recipes? Yeah, a little, little over 200. <laughs> two, I stopped counting at 200 and then uh, knew I was over. Very good. Uh, and then one of the reviewers called it uh, a joy of cooking for cocktails. So uh, I, I'll take it. Oh, fantastic. Well, when we come back from this break, we're going to dive into the... We're going to dive into the Boulevardier. The Boulevardier. So stay tuned, folks. Hey, if you ever miss a show, check out the website, happyhourradio.net. And if uh, you're on Twitter, check us out. It's Happy HR Radio. So stick around, folks. We'll be right back here on Happy Hour Radio on 570 KVI. Hi, I'm David LeClaire with Seattle and Cork, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KBI. A look at the world from a Northwest perspective. Lars Larson, live, weekdays, noon to 3. Talk Radio 570 KBI, want to know weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. I've got Paul Clark, the executive uh, editor of Imbibe Magazine, which is uh, an online magazine, but also in print. So check it out, imbibemagazine.com, and also the editor of uh, the Cocktail Chronicles. You can find those at all the fine bookshops. And I'm going to read you a little segment from uh, one of his pages. This is page 67, The Japanese Cocktail. 
Cocktails aren't designed to last. Most originate in the twinkle of a bartender's eye, spawned by the flirtation between notion and experience, and emerge from the cocktail shaker with a lifespan that even a fruit fly would, would consider brutish and short. But some drinks manage to linger, and a lucky handful even grasp what passes in this world for immortality. Well, does this next drink, the Boulevardier, uh, meet that, that criteria from immortality? It's it's one of those odd little drinks where it actually, uh, it, it's more of a Lazarus drink. It had passed away for, for a number <laughs> of years and then was was raised from the dead uh, just in the, in the past few years. Many of us are familiar, if you're familiar with cocktails at all, you're probably familiar with the Negroni. Yes. Uh, it's, it's definitely having its moment uh, going on for a while. This is a very close relative of the Negroni, uh, originating out of Paris in the 1920s. So basically, um, we have Campari in it, as which uh, also goes in common with the Negroni. Um, and we also have the sweet vermouth again making an appearance here, as it did in the Hanky Panky and also in, as in the Negroni. But whereas a Negroni is gin-based, for the Boulevardier, we're using bourbon. Hmm, interesting. Um, as I read, look, finger through this, uh, thumb through this book, finger through this book, let me read some of the cocktails. You have a milk punch. Uh, you've got the Tom Collins, which, of course, is a classic. Uh, the Bijou and Saint Martin. Uh, Cameron's Kick, the Julep and Smash, Blood and Sand. Now, that's one of my cocktails that I had in Vegas. I said, can you make a Blood and Sand? Because the ingredients didn't sound good to me. The ingredients are blended scotch whiskey, orange juice, sweet vermouth, and cherry hearing. And that just seems so weird, but when when I tasted it, I was uh, in love with blood. <laughs> Very good. Now, as I look through this book, there doesn't seem to be any sort of real, um, uh, ooh, what do you call it, uh, order. You've got all these 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 uh, great recipes that sort of, you know, you got the honey fits next to Tommy's margarita. Um, was there any sort of uh, philosophy or idea behind uh, ske- scheduling these cocktails in any order? Yeah, basically, um, I, I have it broken down in a few chapters. Chapter two are the classic cocktails that, that are recognizably classics, many of which had disappeared from the scene for, for years or, or decades and that have been revived uh, just in the last 10, 15, 20 years uh, by bartenders basically digging them out of the old history books. The second chapter, I wanted to take a few drinks like the Negroni or like the Manhattan that have uh, never really disappeared, but have also served as kind of fonts of inspiration, if you will, for bartenders working today, uh, both finding their relatives and where you see constant variations going on from bartenders in the bars, taking these foundations and kind of continuing to, to tinker with them. And then uh, the the next chapter is more contemporary drinks, drinks that have come out of the cocktail renaissance, mo- mostly out of the last 10 years. Some of them go back into the 90s or even back into the 80s for a couple of them, uh, which were kind of, you know, the early arrivals. But um, I wanted to focus on some of those drinks that are of a more recent vintage, but that I feel legitimately stand along with these others as drinks that will be classics of the future. Very cool. And when we think about cocktails, there is a certain theme between cocktails because something means like a swizzle. A swizzle is a type of, of cocktail method or uh, cocktail preparation, as is a smash. Um, and so some of those things, when you hear the names, you go, that sounds kind of funny, but it's because they're really takes on, on the, the classic cocktails. Oh, here it is, Hanky Panky, next to the Creole Contentment and the Sherry Cobbler. Wow. Now, this is a little bigger glass, um, and it's a beautiful color. It's sort of a, a an a off cherry, more of a burnt cherry. 
color. Absolutely. If, if you're familiar with a Negroni, you know, you know it has that kind of garnet hue from the Campari. Um, but since we're using bourbon in place of gin in here, you have a little bit more of that amber touch from the whiskey coming into play. Um, it's it's a boozy drink. Let's let's not make any mistakes about it. But it's uh, such that kind of big, bold, it has a bitter edge to it. It has a herbaceous edge. But it also has that kind of identifiable roundness from the whiskey uh, that I found really engaging. This is one of my favorite cocktails. Uh, I'm well, I'm uh, inspired and uh, I'm smitten with this cocktail. You're right. The attack is actually sweet. You get some of the uh, the sweetness from the what is it you said you from use? the uh, the Campari, the Campari. Uh, coming into it. Mm-hmm. You know, Campari is a bitter liqueur. It's something that you know usually when you first encounter it, it just scares you to scares you to death. Um, it has that bitterness that just kind of smacks you a little bit. But over time, you get accustomed to that flavor and you find that it has really that bittersweet edge. It's it's such an Italian creation where it has that bitter complexity but also that sweetness that you just find so alluring. And uh, I see you garnishes with an orange peel. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, Campari just loves orange. It just goes so well with, with the flavor of orange peel um, and, and bourbon as well. Bourbon really enjoys that, uh, that kind of company. Wow, the Boulevardier, huh? That's really cool. Very Absolutely. tasty. I like it. it is round in the mouth. And you think that's from the, the bourbon? Uh, the, the bourbon gives it the roundness, also the, the sweetness from the Campari. It kind of gives it that, that mouth feel. All right. So what's in the Boulevardier again? It's uh, it's an equal parts drink, so it's very easy to make. You can make them one at a time or a bucket at a time, however <laughs> you like to take them. Uh, it's bourbon, sweet vermouth, and Campari. Okay. So an ounce, an ounce, an ounce, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, that's how I roll. Um, and again, this is stirred. This is a stirred drink. Uh, again, you know, it's all booze going into it, so you don't necessarily want any bubbles. You don't need to aerate it. It really benefits from that kind of silky mouthfeel when you put it in the glass. And there's something elegant and sophisticated in the smaller glass. It's like, you know what? When you have a bigger glass, I think you end up drinking more. That's what. Mm-hmm. That's why you've got these big mouth beer bottles out there these days because they figured out, hey, the you know, small hole is <laughs> going through. Um, and what's cool about this is that it has some sophistication and it slows you down. And, and I like, uh, you know, of course, the effects of, of a great cocktail but um, you want to be uh, alert and and Mm -hmm. have a great conversation. Absolutely. Drinking from a smaller glass and drinking a smaller cocktail, really you're drinking like a grown-up at this point. Um, And, you know, you have matured from that time in college uh, when, you know, from doing (laughs) your keg stands and and from from your 20s when you would be out all night. Maybe you're still out all night now, but still you're doing it in a much more balanced, restrained, and responsible manner. Ah, this is so fun. I've got Paul Clark, the uh, editor-in-chief, well, sorry, the executive editor of Imbibe Magazine, and that's imbibemagazine.com. And, of course, this great, cool book is called The Cocktail Chronicles, Navigating the Cocktail Renaissance with Jigger, Shaker, and Glass. This is really fun. Um, How long did it take you to to write this book and to sort of, you know, feel out the research? Well, you know, I've been doing the research for this book basically for 10 years, uh, because that's about the amount of time that I've been writing professionally about cocktails for Imbibe Magazine, for the San Francisco Chronicle, for a number of other publications and websites. Um, and so this gave me an opportunity to kind of raid my archives, find the things I loved, and dig them out, dust them off, and, and bring them back out again. And uh, how far back did you, what was the first cocktail you said that's going to be in it? The, the, you know, the first cocktail that ever grabbed my interest was the Gimlet. Oh. Uh, doing a classic Gimlet, you know, just it's very simple, very basic, but it's so alluring, so interesting once you get into it. You know, the Rose's Lime Juice, and, and Rose's Lime Juice is actually a special kind of lime juice. It came from a special lime, was it? And, or a guy who made it? I it, it, was, it was from a guy. Uh, basically, it was made to be a preserved lime juice yes. uh, to, to be served Sailors. on board. Uh, exactly. For, for uh 
Royal Navy uh, to help prevent scurvy. This is a way to keep the lime juice from going bad when they were at sea. Yeah, so they, they could, uh, well, have yo-ho-ho in a bottle of rum. <laughs> um, the last cocktail you have here, and I shouldn't say the last. Don't tell me it's the last word. <laughs> What's the third cocktail we, we have? We're going to go with a more contemporary drink called the Naked and Famous. Uh, this is from a New York bartender named Joaquin Simo. Uh, he is a owner of Pouring Ribbons in New York City. Um, and it's it's a much more contemporary cocktail, but actually it's a relative of the last word. It's made in very uh, much the same manner, that? same kind of same kind of foundation. Um, it's made with mezcal, so for that kind of smoky, boozy aspect Ooh, yeah. to it. We've got yellow chartreuse for the herbaceousness. We've got Aperol, which lends kind of that crisp bitterness, and then some lime juice to help balance it all out. And so Aperol is from Italy. Aperol is from Italy. It's it's kind of a cousin uh, to Campari, a yes. little bit easier to, to get Chartreuse is from with. France, and there's green chartreuse and yellow chartreuse. And the mezcal, of course, is from any place in Mexico. It's Yeah, it's it typically from Oaxaca. Uh, Oaxaca is where you find some of the best and some of the most interesting mezcals. Uh, and that's a really intriguing um, beverage these days for me. The spirit is, is quite... I love that smokiness. If you like scotch, you must try mezcal. So um, if you get a chance... And what's the mezcal you're using? Uh, I'm using uh, mezcal called called Vita. It's from Del Maguey. Uh, Del Maguey is one of the pioneers in uh, craft artisanal mezcals coming out of Mexico. Vita is the expression they made basically for cocktails. Ah, fun. So, um, Paul Clark, you've got a book and a website. What is it again? Uh, the book is The Cocktail Chronicles, and the website is cocktailchronicles.com. What can we find on the website? You will find uh, a lot of recipes I've played with over the years. Some of them are in the book. Some of them are uh, little oddballs that, that I didn't put in the book. Um, but lots of different recipes for ingredients, for cocktails, and just commentary over the years. Fantastic. When we come back from this break, we're going to dive into that third cocktail and hopefully we don't stop <laughs> <laughs> folks hope you're enjoying this show i've got paul clark uh, executive editor of m magazine and author of Cro- cocktail chronicles boy i say cocktails now here we go so stick around folks we'll be right back on happy hour radio This is Dennis Cakebread with Cakebread Sellers. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio on 570 KVI. The Commute with Carlson, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m. on Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, folks, it's time for round four, and I'm kicking off the new year, uh, well, with some classic cocktails. The next one's called... Naked and Afraid or something? Naked and Famous. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Naked and Afraid is a TV show, but I could see you making a cocktail like that. So Naked and Famous, um, this is one of the cocktails in the Cocktail Chronicles written by Paul Clark, and I've got Paul Clark here shaking up some magic. Paul, what's in Naked and Famous? Naked and Famous, it's a four-ingredient drink. You use equal parts of all of them. Use some mezcal, yellow chartreuse, Aperol, and fresh lime juice. Okay, and uh, I, I like all that stuff. Now, there's the difference between yellow chartreuse and green chartreuse, I think it's the color, obviously, but is there something uh, inside that uh, um, combination of... Uh 
uh, who are those? Cisternian monks, I think, who made the uh, chartreuse? Yeah, the uh, Carthusian monks Carthusian. Um, put, put together chartreuse. The the green chartreuse is the original. It's it's a very high, high octane uh, liqueur. Yeah, uh, it at lights around on 114 fire. proof. The yellow chartreuse is the is the lighter cousin. Um, it's a little bit sweeter. It's sweetened with honey, uh, and it's a little bit Ooh. lower octane. It's closer to 80 proof. Okay. So um, it's a little bit more moderate in, in, in its punch, but it still has that kind of herbaceous flavor that you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, and the Carthusian monks keep that closely guarded secret of all the ingredients they have, and next they would uh, uh, scour the fields and uh, fauna for all sorts of cool little flowers and herbs and leaves and other things, and they've been doing that for, I think, 800 years now, I think, is when... Uh, the Carthusian monks made chartreuse. Yeah, this liqueur is is really one of the um, older products of, of Western civilization that's still in circulation, and especially one of the older products in the bar. Uh, well, you're right. Next to the Galliano that's been sitting up there, I mean, hopefully Galliano makes a comeback. I had a little <laughs> taste. We were making Harvey Wallbangers last year. It was actually National Harvey Wallbanger Day, and that was a big treat, my friend Jeff Schaff. Um, and folks, uh, while Paul Clark mixes up this Naked and Famous, um, just to divert from cocktails, we have a big wine event coming up in Seattle, February 8th, over at McCaw Hall. Uh, the whole the whole wine appellation of Walla Walla is coming to town, and they're going to put on, they got 51 winemakers, and uh, gosh, it must be 100-plus wines at least. So check it out, Walla Walla Wine Alliance. You can get a ticket. They've got this consumer tasting in the evening from 5 to 8, and it's a great chance to uh, save four hours from driving over to Walla Walla. But if you do drive, it's definitely worth the drive. Uh, you can stop off in Yakima and Prosser and... And, uh, well, the Tri-Cities. Oh, look at this drink. It's, uh, wow, that is pretty. That looks like uh, ruby red grapefruit juice. It does look like grapefruit juice. <laughs> and this is the cutest little martini shell ever. I like it's a, it's a sturdy stem and a very... Uh, well, this is kind of a Marie Antoinette. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it's more of a uh, it, it kind of uh, alludes to the to the classic uh, triangular uh, martini glass, but it's a lot rounder, a lot uh, more approachable. And all of these glasses I'm finding, you know, they are vintage barware, but they're stuff that you can pick up pretty much at any kind of estate sale uh, or any kind of uh, a lot of thrift stores and things of that nature. Holy smokes. Where did this, this cocktail come from? This is from New York City. It originated at a bar called Death & Company, uh, which is where <laughs> Joaquin CMO was working at the time. Now he's the owner of Pouring Ribbons. Um, you know, Mezcal is one of those uh, kind of darling children of the cocktail world right now, and uh, it brings a lot of smoke, brings Holy a certain kind of rusticity right. to it. Yeah, it's uh, it's smoky. It's it's a little tart. It's a little tangy. It's a little bitter. It's kind of it hit, hits every note in there. And it lingers, mm -hmm. just like this has definitely got that campfire finish. But what a lovely color! It's uh, it's more of a peach papaya. Um and you shook this drink because you want some dilution or what? Exactly. Well, there's some fresh lime juice in there, so you want a little bit of the uh, the, the shaking helps aerate it. And since you have an opaque drink anyway, from adding the citrus uh, citrus juice to it, it you know just kind of brightens everything up. Holy smokes! Um, what an amazing cocktail! I, I've never had anything like that. That is uh, truly an original, but yet it is old school. It's absolutely. I mean, th this is a kissing cousin to the last word, which you know, drinkers in Seattle, cocktail drinkers in Seattle, know very much as that classic cocktail that was revived by Murray Stinson at Zigzag Cafe. This is the very same drink with just kind of a plug-and-play on the ingredients. Wow, and there's also a drink called the Corpse Reviver, speaking of being revived. Well, I am revived in this new year, and I've had a, a great time meeting you. This is a, such a treat for me. Paul Clark, executive editor of Imbibe Magazine.
Magazine. Check the website out at buymagazine.com. And check out the this great Cocktail Chronicles book. This is a recipe book, but it's also got um, some prose in there that tells the story. Absolutely. You know, I've, I've been writing my drinks for over 10 years. I wanted to wrap in um, some of the stuff, some of the favorite stories I've come across over the years, as well as provide readers with kind of an all-around experience in the cocktail world. Well, Paul Clark, uh, CocktailChronicles.com. Thanks so much for, uh, well, shaking up and stirring up some delicious cocktails. And I want you back on Happy Hour Radio. Will you come back and join me? Absolutely. I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love for you to, as well, um, as soon as I get off my resolution that I won't drink in January. <laughs> well, folks, hope you enjoyed the show and uh, thanks for tuning in remember share this with your friends uh, you can find our uh, if you missed the show tell your friends that you've, you can check it out on Facebook it's a uh, happy hour radio of course we got uh, the Twitter handle at happy HR radio you have a Twitter handle Paul uh, yeah it's at cocktail cron C-H-R-O-N alright so we'll be uh, tweeting and uh, imbibing and having a lot of fun so folks thanks so much for joining me uh, hope you enjoyed the show and remember folks life is always better with the designated driver See you next week. Cheers. Cheers.